0: Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and I am just absolutely delighted to connect with Dr. David Sinclair, who is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and generally recognized as one of the major thought leaders in the science of how to improve our, not only our our lifespan, but our health span. So he started in Sydney, got his uh, PhD there, and then he went over to Lenny Garanti's lab at MIT, and then he's got his own lab at Harvard Medical School in 1999, he's been working there ever since, and really come up with astounding discoveries, which we're gonna talk about today. But the, one of the primary focuses is, is his new book, which is called Lifespan, The Revolutionary Science of Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to Do That. And it's going to be available September 10th. And if you're watching this, it's not September 10th, you can pre-order it on Amazon. So welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, you talk about a lot of great things in there and I want to really highlight some uh, some of the concepts that you discussed because I think there's so much potential to help us and uh, hit this, really, the, the king of all diseases, which is aging. So you talk about calorie restriction as being the only proven non-pharmacological method of consistently extending lifespan and protecting it against many of the age-related diseases. Um, And and then you also discuss intermittent fasting. So I'm wondering, um, one of the benefits of not eating is suppressing mTOR and activating autophagy. So I'm wondering what type of conclusions you've reached with respect to the optimal timing of the periods of the time-restricted eating and the frequency of that and how you think uh, integrating fasting or partial fasting into that Mm -hmm.
1: series might look like. Yeah. Uh, Well, we've known for uh, probably more than uh, 5,000 years that being a bit hungry is good for you. So this is not revolutionary what what's been more revolutionary in the last few years is the discovery of, of biochemical pathways that actually seem to underlie this this actual protection against disease and aging itself um, and so we're not so much guessing anymore what's going on and science has gotten involved and we're doing more and more studies um, certainly in humans but also in in animals to see what best diet works um, and the, the bottom line, I, I get questions every day. I wake up to probably a couple of dozen emails about this topic. Nobody actually knows what's best, um, but, but we can go through them and, and I can talk about which is mm-hmm. my favorite as well, because there's, it's not just a science aspect, it's also social. Mm-hmm. You know, we love to eat, we have traditions, we have typically three meals a day, and uh, trying to deviate from that is, is really quite challenging. Calorie restriction in animals and in humans is about 20 to 30% less than what a doctor or a veterinarian would recommend. Um, I also, uh, I struggled with that one. Um, so I, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. It's, it really means you've got to be hungry for most of the time. And I'm sure you get used to it, but I didn't get, get that far. After about a week, I got uh, too hungry and I gave up. Um, and then I didn't restrict my diet for many years, actually. I had kids and that's really hard to do. Uh, but more recently, what I've, I've done, which I find very easy to do, is uh, basically miss a meal once a day. Uh, and I, I'm not hungry in the morning. Some people are not hungry at night. if you can go for, uh, say, at 7 o'clock at night all the way through to lunchtime, mm-hmm. um, based on the animal studies that I've seen published and some in my lab, uh, that's very likely to do you a lot of good uh, in the long run. And in the short run, mm-hmm. and the the science behind it's really interesting. I'll come back to that. Uh, but there are other other diets that other people have found to be effective um, in terms of improving bio, biology and biochemical markers. One is the five plus two diet. Mm-hmm. Michael Mosley. Exactly. I'm, I'm sure many of your viewers are familiar with that one.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: no, know, that that one is also quite doable, uh, especially if you you uh, have sodas and things like that um, that can actually oh, just bubbled water. Um, more extreme are those diets where you go for a whole week uh, mm-hmm. every every couple of months or every few months. Uh, I haven't I haven't tried that I'd like to my my, uh, my view on that is that that's probably going to work the best if you can do it because it, it, it doesn't just trigger, the short-term pathways that we've been studying in my lab but a, a week of fasting will, will really start the body to start consuming its own uh protein and this is as you mentioned autophagy that's what aut- autophagy is it's the consuming of our own um, biological material which is typically uh protein and actually talking with people who have done these fasting regimens after about three days something different starts to kick in and Uh, People who try this tell me that they have a feeling of euphoria and they definitely get an added added boost. Um, But just let let me quickly go back to why we think this works. So we've been studying in my lab for the last 20 years genes that respond to diet, uh, to fasting and calorie restriction. And the upshot of it is that our bodies respond to adversity or perceived adversity. They turn on these defensive pathways it changes a bunch, of, a bunch of genes that switch on to defend our bodies. And at least from many different animals, things as small as worms and flies all the way up to mice and rats, these defences of the body are extremely good at protecting us against diseases from diabetes to cancer, heart disease, even uh, dementia, Alzheimer's. These are things that modern medicine has struggled to combat Um, And this seems to be a very simple way to get the body to fight against those diseases. Um, Often I'm asked, how early should you start? Uh, In the animal studies, in in rat studies, mouse studies, the sooner you start, the better. And the longer you do this, the better in your life. Clearly, we don't want to be um, recommending or seeing teenagers or even people who are in their early 20s do this because there's still a lot going on in their bodies and their brains. But after 30, uh, if you extrapolate from the animal studies, then uh, the longer you do this in the lifespan, the better. And I'm I'm just turning 50 now, and I wish I had started earlier. (laughs) Yeah, me too. So uh, you
0: mentioned stopping eating at seven, and, and there's a large number of people who advocate restrict, not so much necessarily tying it to a specific time, but at least three to four hours before you go to bed. And uh, I've been largely, as a result of your exposure to your videos, was been fascinated by the NAD and its family, its cousins, like NADPH. And when I started studying NADPH, I realized that the biggest consumer of NADPH, which is a molecule that essentially is the battery of your cell and recharges your antioxidants, is fatty acid uh, synthesis. So if you're eating shortly before you go to bed, that energy can't be consumed and it must be stored as fat and that's gonna really lower your NADPH levels, which is not a good thing to do at night. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on uh, that timing of the last meal.
1: Yeah, I do. And um, I I wish I could uh, take some of my own advice and medicine. Uh, I think if you can have a light meal at dinner, A typical European dinner. My wife's German. She likes to eat small meals. That's great. Um, I tend to snack at night. So that's my downfall. But yeah, to to be able to have that fast overnight, um, that'll boost your NAD levels up, NADP as well. These are all good things. They turn on the enzymes that we study called the sirtuins. They need NAD to function. And you can use the whole night to uh, ostensibly repair your body uh, and protect it from what happens during the day. Uh, I also, uh, I try to take a couple of metformin pills um, for two reasons. One is that my family has a history of diabetes and metformin is very effective at treating diabetes and even preventing it. So I do that for disease reasons, but also because the work of many labs has pointed to um, not just animals, but tens of thousands of people in clinical trials benefiting from that drug, which seems to... Uh, enhance and mimic the the benefits of fasting.
0: So you talk in your book about this concept of antagonistic pleiotro- pleiotropy, which is essentially multiple ac- actions, some of which may be counter to the intended consequence of of the intervention. So with metformin, you describe the benefits, which is why you're taking it. But you know there are some studies published that show that it's a pretty potent mitochondrial poison, and that it it really focus targets uh, mitochondrial complex one mm-hmm. and shuts it, it, it radically in, inhibits it so that you end result is you're producing a lot less ATP. So yes, it, it, it up regulates AMPK, but in your evaluation of the literature, how do you reconcile those two? Yeah, so
1: here's how I take the literature and there's hundreds of probably even more thousands of papers that I've read on this topic. Mm-hmm. So here's my summary. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD and, and this is one man's opinion. But what I take away from it is that short-term exposure to metformin high doses, uh, yes, it will inhibit complex one and lower ATP. Uh, that's also true for resveratrol, by the way.
0: Well, what we and, ber- that, and berberine too.
1: Yeah, right. But it, I regard it as hormesis, uh, a little bit of what doesn't kill you actually makes you stronger. And so the body recognizing that there's low ATP levels and higher AMP levels will stimulate AMP kinase, uh, which is known to be beneficial uh, and will actually compensate by revving up the mitochondria and building uh, more mitochondria in various organs, uh, particularly the muscle of your body. And so you know, a little bit of inhibition leads to a, a kickback and a compensation. So that's why I think that um, actually metformin is beneficial even though it starts out as a, um, as long as you don't overdose it, a a relatively mild mitochondrial inhibitor. Um, And, you know, in the history of humanity and in animal studies, there's a long literature of molecules that if you give a lot of high dose acutely, uh, it can actually kill you. Uh, But Mm -hmm. little doses, um, as long as they don't do harm, can have a positive effect in the long run. And, you know, the same is true for fasting. If Uh If you don't eat, uh, we know what happens. You'll starve to death. Yeah. If you, if you trick the body into thinking times are tough without leaving a long lasting da- any damage then the body actually do, does better in the long run.
0: Okay, let's get into a, a really important part of your book, which is the balance between anabolism or the building of muscle t- tissue and catabolism, which is the tearing down and repair and regenerate and repair of it. So, um, Interestingly, when you fast, growth hormone levels increase, and maybe you can go into that because it's it, it's kind of it's somewhat counterintuitive because there's no nutrients available. So why would you think growth hormone would increase? So maybe you can discuss that a little bit and the in the influence on uh, uh, IGF one.
1: Right. So um, so IGF one, uh, insulin-like growth hormone, and, and growth hormone itself. Uh, also in the, in the short run don't seem to be healthy, at least in animal studies, and also Nir life for Albert Einstein College of Medicine has studied long-lived families, centenarian families, uh, and what he's found, in particular to IGF-1, is that uh, some families actually can have high levels of IGF-1 but still live a long time, and the reason for that is that they they don't have the IGF-1 receptor that's as active.
0: Is that Laron syndrome?
1: Uh, that's uh, I understand that's the growth hormone as well. So it's it's similar. No, here's our a, here's a Ashkenazi uh, Jewish family okay, that has sent okay. 100 adults. But it's a similar concept is that if you're not responding to these hormones, um, it doesn't matter really how much the body produces, you still have an effect that mimics um, essentially the, the benefits you want. Um, it's It's interesting actually that that growth hormone is stimulated uh, by fasting. There must be something, and I'm, I'm unaware of exactly why, uh, but we know that, that fasting doesn't lead to uh, bigger animals, it's actually the opposite. So it could be that, that and I, now I'm just speculating, but I think it's worth discussing and thinking about that these short-term bursts of hormones may help the body recover from injury, uh, but those little spikes don't last long so that you're not uh, having any downside. The other thing about growth hormone, and I know a lot of people, including um, viewers of this show, will be wondering, what about growth hormone? Is it dangerous in the long run? Should I be taking it, should I not? Now, now I haven't seen any evidence that growth hormone is going to make you live longer. Um, typically, it's the other way around, that people who have a lack of growth hormone activity live longer, uh, Laron dwarfs uh, tend to have less disease. Uh, but in the short run, if, if you need to uh, repair your body and, and build up uh, new muscle, which of course prevents falls and accidents in the elderly, you know, I, I'm perfectly willing to entertain the possibility that, that building up body bulk, and testosterone is the same, mm-hmm. uh, will prevent these accidents that actually largely uh, are a, a problem for longevity. There's a saying actually that the, the way to longevity Uh, the best way to longevity is to hang on to the handrail. And so it's, it's real (laughs) trade-off. It's a trade-off, you know, that if I was to summarize everything that I've learned over the last 30 years, it's um, everything in moderation and, and nothing. Don't do anything too consistently because it's like a frog in a hot water bath or in a, you know, in a fry pan, your body needs to be primed and then allowed to relax and, and, challenged and then allowed to relax. And so these diets and and these growth hormone spikes, I think they're good. Uh, You just don't want them on all the time because then your body doesn't have a chance to recover and you don't get the the long-term benefits.
0: Okay. So uh, tangenting off the elevation of growth hormone during a time-restricted eating fast of 16, 18 hours or even a longer fast, uh, many people believe that the optimal time to engage in resistance or strength training might be right before you have your first meal, so that you're still fasting, your growth hormone levels are activated, and you'll get maximum benefit from the anabolic stress of the exercise, which, of course, is increasing PGC-1-alpha, mitochondrial biogenesis, and a lot of other benefits that occur during exercise. Do so you have any... Uh,
1: yeah, yeah this, this is really the You're talking about the cutting edge of thinking. So people who are Discussing that idea, I think, are similar similar to the way I'm thinking about biology. Um, you know, again, in the full disclaimer, this is now we're discussing the cutting edge of science, so we don't know fully the answers to this. But what makes sense to me is that um, we don't want too much protein in our lives. We don't want to eat a steak every meal, because what we've learned through the work of uh, David Sabatini and and many others in the field, Matt Caberline, that at least in animals, and, and it looks like in people as well, that inhibiting the mTOR pathway by having a lack of amino acids, certain amino acids, is healthy, and does actually lengthen lifespan in animals. But does that mean that you shouldn't eat protein? Absolutely not. There are times when eating protein is important. Same for probably testosterone. Same for growth hormone. And then, but now, now we're getting into the nitty gritty: is if you are pulsing these things. When do you do them together and when you do them apart? And to me, and what you know let me talk about what I do personally, because that's, that's actually a, a better way to approach the discussion. If I'm going to have a steak I try to be vegetarian, but let's say I'm going to have a, a protein shake I'm going to do that just before, just after I've exercised but then I'm going to also have a period in the week where I don't have a lot of protein, and I might just have some salads, and that's where I get my protein. So my body is going like this but it's not out of sync at times when my body needs protein or, or for instance, needs growth hormones. So I I think what you're you're saying is is really going to be the future, that we can't just say doing one thing constantly is the right thing to do and we have to time these beautifully. Um, Otherwise, we're causing uh, stress and damage, uh, but then preventing the healing process by doing something else.
0: Well, thanks, and I do agree with you. I think this is the cutting edge, and really an important question that uh, many of us are challenged with, and uh, especially in the fact that you so well bring out in your book, as we age, you get beyond 65, our protein requirements actually increase for a variety of reasons, from about 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram. And so the key is to, to cycle the suppression of autophagy by not activating mTOR, and not giving these calories and protein, because protein, especially animal protein, branched amino acids, will activate mTORs almost universally. But I'm, I can just share my example. I wonder what your thoughts are on it, because I have an 18-hour time-restricted eating window that I don't eat. And once a week, I'll extend that to 42 hours. So I'll take a day off. So I, do you think that that regular daily eating window of six hours, combined with a weekly one-day full fast is enough to activate autophagy and suppress mTOR and not get the downsides of continuous mTOR activation.
1: Yeah, it does, it does make sense to me. Um, people haven't even done this in animal studies yet. People need to do that. Um, but scientifically it makes sense to me that, that being hungry a little part in the day will, will activate, turn on NAD, uh, you'll get an mTOR inhibition, ampiclinis will come on. Um, but probably the way I'm doing it, which is not as, um, as diligent as you, Joe, I'm on, I'm only doing this kind of a level of reset and no, I think it's, it's good, but it's not perfect. What we really want to do is this and then bam, really get a big reset and start showing up the, the misfolded proteins, get the autophagy going, uh, get the sirtuins to go repair everything in the cell that they possibly could. And so I, I think that's right. That a little bit of stress every day and a lot of stress once in a while is uh, is a great combo. Um, but I think that that would be something to to actually study. And I'm unaware yeah. of anybody who's even done that.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen any studies on it either. I'm I'm hoping someone is uh, in the process of doing those because would really like the answers. But uh, and I guess there's we the, the, the technology is advancing. Where we'll soon be able to measure metabolites more easily than in a research lab. And uh, by doing so, get an indication of what might be the best strategy. Um, Now, in your book, I was so happy when you started discussing glycine, which is the shortest amino acid uh, that we have. And it's a very important one. And uh, it it actually, I think it may be the most common. I think it's about 11 11 to 12% of the total uh, uh, amino acid content in the body. And most of us, I mean, you didn't. Glycine ingestion didn't used to be an issue because we ate connective tissue, and glycine is loaded in collagen. So a third of the proteins in collagen and connective tissue are glycine. So it didn't used to be an issue, but we're not eating connective tissue much anymore. So unless you're consuming bone broth or collagen supplements, you're not getting it. So why don't you talk about the importance of glycine, especially with fructose consumption that's so rampant in the United States and the advantage of doing it, especially with the the glycine-methionine ratio.
1: Uh, well, so the reason that I take, um, glycine actually specifically trimethylglycine is, is actually to to counter what I think might be going on with an NAD booster. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in, in glycine other, other than that, but I, I can talk about, um, the trimethylglycine component if you like.
0: Sure. Sure. Um,
1: yeah, so this is a big question in, in my field. So just to take a step back, my, my field and, a lot of what my book is about, is being able to trick the body into being hungry and having exercised. And one of the molecules that does that is NAD. Uh, NAD uh, stands for nicotinamide, adenine dinucleotide, and we have it in our body. As we exercise, as we get hungry, it goes up. As we get older, it goes down. Uh, And it's needed for life. It's also needed for turning on these defensive enzymes that we work on called sirtuins. Now, to raise NAD levels, what we've done in my lab to mice for the last decade is we give them precursors to NAD. So we give them molecules like nicotinamide riboside or NR or nicotinamide mononucleotide, also known as NMN, not to be confused with <laughs> m um, which will have the opposite effect. And uh, so NMN is, is what I take each day. I take a, a gram of it. But the thing with nicotinamide mononucleotide NMN is that it, it has this nicotinamide group on it. It hangs off the the main part of the chemical and it's the first bond to break. And so we see in animals and even in humans that the levels of nicotinamide go up quite rapidly after taking NMN or NR and two high levels of nicotinamide are not good Um, in part because the nicotinamide gets excreted through the kidneys and it's done so that happens because it becomes methylated into methyl nicotinamide. And methyl nicotinamide has been used for for years as a marker of all sorts of things, including at least experimentally for Parkinson's disease. But the concern that's that's been talked about uh, in social media especially is, is this drain of methyl nicotinamide a problem? The the methyl groups are are needed for the body. We need methyl for a whole range of things, including um, antioxidants. And uh, so as a precaution, I take trimethylglycine so that Uh, I continue to give my body a source of methyl groups. Now, I don't know if that's true. Uh, People ask me all the time. I take it as a precaution because I know that trimethylglycine is not going to hurt me. Glycine is good. And the other thing is trimethylglycine is also known as betaine, uh, which on human cells is very good for them, um, including protecting them against stress. So I I don't see any downside. It's not an expensive molecule. And the upside is that I'm, Preventing my body from being drained of methyl groups. But the reason that I can't say for sure that it's ne- necessary, actually, is that our bodies can make methyl groups. There's a whole pathway. In fact, I did a PhD on it when I was in Australia 30 years ago. Um, but so I do take it as a precaution, um, knowing that, that it's probably not doing anything um, except goodness for my body. Great. Right. Um, have you looked at
0: methylcobalamin or methylfolate as a? i
1: have I have actually, and I think those are interesting too. I couldn't say which is better in fact because nobody has studied it but those are those are options too they're actually mm-hmm. I've seen um, companies selling those vitamins uh, with methyls on them, and those are vitamins that I think are are worth taking as well um so those are options i think um you know like all professors, we like to say we need more studies before we know for sure um but with in the absence of studies, i think those options are are the best right now. So
0: thank you for bringing up the topic of NAD, one of my favorites for sure. And I want to express my deepest gratitude for you for helping inspire me to understand the importance of this molecule. I I first recognized it when, uh, the importance of it, because of course we're taught in in any biochemistry class. When I watched one of your videos four years ago. But as I understand, NAD was discovered about almost a century ago by Otto Warburg. But it only recently became to be deeply appreciated as a fundamental strategy for all of health and longevity. I mean, it's it's a coenzyme in over 500 metabolic reactions in the body. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do you believe was the catalyst for the reemergence of the prominence of NAD and longevity?
1: Uh, well, I'd like to think it was work that I was doing with uh, Lenny Guerranti at MIT.
0: That's what I thought, and I, I <laughs> it set me up for it. But because, you know, that's what I actually put in one of my new books is uh, acknowledging you as the, is really the catalyst for that.
1: Well, it, w- it was a team, and I'm not just being yeah. coy about that. We we landed at the right place at the right time. We discovered genes that control aging in yeast cells. Uh, ironically, that's where NAD was first discovered. Um, and I, I would argue that. If yeast weren't making alcohol, we probably wouldn't have discovered NAD for a long while. Uh, But yeah, the the Germans just did discover NAD, and we learned in high school that NAD is essential for all these reactions. So we knew that, but what we didn't realize until the late 1990s was that the levels of NAD in organisms such as yeast and and in in our bodies as well, they're really dynamic. It's not just that it's a housekeeping molecule keeping us alive. During the day, it's going like this, and in a yeast cell, it's going like this. And that was a shock because, first of all, anything that's that important, you think, how can it go up 50% or or 100% during the day without killing us? Turns out it does, and it's actually very helpful. And the reason that we think it goes up and down is NAD isn't just making chemical reactions happen, but there are proteins that sense the amount of NAD in the cell. And when times are tough, we're hungry or we've exercised, NAD levels will actually go up, and turn on these defenses. And that's why when you take a molecule like NMN or give an NMN to a mouse, what we think is happening is that you're tricking the body into thinking that it's exercise or that it's hungry because the NAD levels will go up. So you get the benefit, the protective benefits of these without actually having to necessarily exercise or diet. But if you're if you're wondering, is it is it fine just to take the pill and sit on the couch and eat potato chips? Uh, the answer is. Uh, probably not. We, we, I mean, in, in full disclosure, we have published that resveratrol and and a man who that work through similar mechanisms do make mice healthier, even if they're fatter and don't exercise. But here's the important thing for those who want to maximize their body's potential, maximize their life. We find that the combination of low calorie diets and these NAD boosters, or in the case of resveratrol we showed has a a doubling effect they're actually additive and so it's not no excuse just to sit around and just pop a bill.
0: okay well I, I think you're right on i think that the optimizing in in, in in most people increasing nad levels because it goes down pretty radically as you age to the point where once you reach 80 i mean it's almost it's like now almost not there uh a radically decrease for at a minimum so uh, you had mentioned NMN and NR's precursors as one strategy to increase it, but I'd like to discuss some other options. Uh, first is the, actually the NAD molecule itself, NAD+, which is a charged molecule, and if you swallow it, it will not work at all, as it's assessed, except it's being metabolized to its precursors and reconstituted. But it can be given parenterally, either IV sub-Q or transdermally. And there's been a lot of dispute in the literature, I'd like to get your view on it, but uh, a good friend of mine, who actually was just here last weekend, James Clement, who speaks very highly of you, by the way, uh, d- has doing a lot of research in NAD also and uses uh, Nady Brady's lab out in New South Wales to actually measure it. And from his analysis, he, fi- he finds that, uh, well, first of all, the NAD does seem to enter the cells and there's a transporter, which I didn't know about until he told me, which was connexin 43 that uh, substantiates the, the strategy of using NAD plus itself rather than an intermediary or precursor. And we'll talk about some of the other precursors because there's more than just those that, that we're mentioning. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you know, it's, it's James' assessment that the transdermal battery patch applied maybe once or twice a week might be an optimal strategy to, to improve it. And, and, you know, and he's documented by NAD's mass spec measurements at Brady's lab. So I'm wondering what your thoughts on that
1: are. Right. Well, so there there are a variety of ways to raise NAD. um, And this list is not exhaustive, but I'll I'll talk about what ones we know of that have been really tested um, fairly extensively. Uh, So you can raise NAD levels just by taking uh, nicotinic acid or niacin. And uh, so niacin has been used for decades to lower cholesterol, and uh, the only side effect is flushing. Uh, You feel a little bit warm. Um, There are slow-release versions. That will raise NAD, and actually there are some of us, myself included, that are entertaining the possibility that the benefits you get uh, are in part because it also raises NAD. Uh, But in in head-to-head studies that I've read, Uh niacin won't raise NAD levels the way some of these other molecules too. Um, and I think the reason is that niacin is just a, a tiny part of the NAD molecule. Uh, and so, you know, let me think of an, an analogy. It'd be like saying uh, I can build a house out of bricks, but if you don't bring the mortar and the windows and the doors and the roof, uh, you, it's going to be a lot harder. Um, and so the windows and, and the roof come in with molecules like nr which is nicotine riboside and nmn which is nr but with a phosphate group added so now you've got more of the house built in and you're almost at nad um and so we're getting closer and uh so there's there's a debate it's uh it's a bit of a silly debate which is better nr nmn in mice i can tell you that that both work uh well to improve the health and the lifespan of mice. We've done a lifespan of, of NMN. We haven't. Uh, we're repeating it. it. Looks good. NR is published that it extends the lifespan of old mice. So they're both great. It's really, uh, I, I think it's semantics to say that one is, you know, ten times better than the other. It's just not not the case. Um, they both get into cells. Uh, there are transporters for NR. There's a new newly discovered transporter for NMN
0: ah that must have been the last few months i have not seen that
1: right yeah so it came out of um dr shin imai's lab mm-hmm. uh, at wash u medical school um, and i wrote a news and views uh, article on it it looked really convincing what we don't know though is is this transporter in all cells or is it just in the gut um and so you know that remains to be seen but it it really doesn't matter It it it's, it's irrelevant. We can talk about transporters all, all day. What really matters is, do, do you see health benefits and do you see NAD levels going up? Um, and I guess the third important thing is, are there any side effects or negative side effects? Um, I haven't seen any negative side effects, and I've certainly seen niacin, NR, and NMN raise NAD levels and provide health benefits. Um, and as I mentioned, NR and NMN um, seem to be better than niacin.
0: Well, niacin does have problems. There's no question. Niacinamide even more, as you well know, and you've done the research. Actually, I think your lab showed this, is that the niacinamide actually uh, inhibits sirtuins um, for, through a negative feedback loop. I'm so, impressed.
1: You've, uh, you've done your reading. You uh, Yeah, I've,
0: you I've studied this. I told you, you really inspired me. I mean, I've read hundreds of studies about this, and uh, that was one of them. So the, uh, but the niacin in high doses is not without side effect, aside from the flushing that you mentioned, which is actually liberation of histamine from the mast cells, it radically consumes uh, methyl groups. So uh, not a good idea to take high dose niacin, but I've concluded, and I might be wrong here, I'd be interested in your thoughts, and then we'll go into the details, dive deeper into the NR, uh, NMN of uh, 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 taking a very small dose of niacin, 25 to 50 milligrams, which shouldn't suck up too many methyl groups, but yet still can contribute to the, in at least a normal human, at least as I read, about the 90 milligram loss of NAD plus per day, because we've got nine grams in our body, but we re- recycle 99% of it. So the niacin is really only good for the salvage pathway. So what are your thoughts on 25 to 50 milligrams, maybe twice a day, because the half-life of NAD is about 12 hours? to yeah. use that as an augmentation strategy to the pre- other precursors, or even NAD Plus mm. itself?
1: Well, so th- there are two ways to think about it. One is, can you stimulate the body to make more NAD? Uh, mm. Because it is recycled. Um, and the other is, which, which would I focus my uh, thoughts on more, which is, if we give the, the cells so much precursor. They have no no alternative but to put it into NAD. Uh, and I think that those two ways of thinking, are your way and my way, are guiding what we do. Uh, I think it's possible that low doses of um, nicotinic acid could stimulate the body and um, force the cell to make more than it otherwise would. But it would have to make more than it otherwise would because the amount of NAD in your body is, is you know, it's in the gram amounts. So milligram amounts are probably not going to, you know, by mass action push it up. Okay.
0: Well, that um, was one of the things that discouraged me from even considering it as a practical strategy because there's grams in it. So what, it didn't make sense to me why taking milligrams of something would be a benefit. But mm-hmm. there appears to be a benefit.
1: Okay, well that's good news. I'd, I'd be curious how that works. So you know, my, my guess would be that well, you're. James. I'm going to
0: test it because James Clement has developed this elegant blotter strategy where you can, can uh, essentially pipette a, a drop or two of blood on a blotter, freeze it, and then he's getting a mass spec in his lab and he's going to be able to measure it. So I'm going to do the test this fall and, and see if it makes a difference. I mean, I just don't know. It's just theoretical at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, when it comes to NMN, which we've studied for a lot, um, and there are studies on NR in humans, And I've some insights into NMN in humans as well, though that work isn't yet published. Um, What can I reveal? I can reveal that that taking doses, uh, say, less than 250 milligrams, don't have a big effect on NAD in the blood. Mm, That would make sense. You do have to take high doses. But it's complicated by the observation that a single dose won't, have a big, long-lasting effect anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see that in mice as well. You, you take one hit of uh, NMN and it'll go up, uh, maybe go about 50%, and then it'll quickly die, die away in levels. But what's interesting in the mouse and the human studies is it's more like a, a positive stock market where over a period of, in the case of the NR study that I'm thinking of, after nine days, it was a, an accumulation uh, up to a certain level. And so if a study has only done a one-time point in a human or in a mouse, uh, be careful because that's probably misleading. Um, And that, you know, you want to measure these things after at least nine days and hopefully after a few months. where And, you know, maybe, Joe, that those low doses actually start to kick in.
0: Yeah. What do you think is the optimal uh, dosing strategy is? Every 12 hours or three times a day?
1: Well, you know, that's also not known. Um, and I, I probably know more than most people on the planet. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do I do? I, I take a bolus in the morning. I take a gram in the morning. I know a, a gram is likely to be raising my NAD levels during day. I also try to time it with my natural circadian rhythm. So NAD will go up during the morning, getting ready. Um, but if I take it at night, uh, what I find is that I'm actually starting to interfere with my sleep patterns interesting yeah and a lot of people have told me that that's the case as well with resveratrol as well it actually makes sense there's a, a few science papers on this about um one which is the target one of the, the nad requiring enzymes that we study so cert one is also its activity is cycling through the day with nad uh turning on genes that are required for you know morning activities and going to sleep at night, clearing the brain at night, you think. If you get those out of kilter, uh, I mean, it makes sense that you will not only affect your body's metabolism, find it hard to sleep, but you could even start to have the effects of jet lag uh, inadvertently. Um, I, I like to think that by taking the NAD boosters when I'm traveling, I'm actually resetting my body's clock. And I do find, you know, for me, uh, in my experience, I do feel better if I reset my clock with an NAD booster when I arrive at an, in a new time zone.
0: So h- how does that reconcile with the fact that NAD plus levels increase by about 30%? At least that's what I've read in the literature, once you're fasting. So, you know, I'm just trying to reconcile that and the fact that you're having challenges with NAD plus at night because of the sleep interference.
1: Yeah, well, so... I'm, I don't think anyone's done a, t- a twenty-four hour time course of NAD in, in, in people. In mice, we do know that it's cycling uh, mm-hmm. through the day. You know, th- let's see. We're, we're right on the cutting edge here. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a choice. You can take it at at night or in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, probably what's happening is if if I take it just before I go to bed, my body's not in a fasting state yet. It's still got, you know, my dinner is still in there. Uh, and so it's uh, it's mimicking fasting. It's raising NAD levels just when it should should be starting to, to tailor off. I think probably what's happening, Joe, is now that I'm thinking out loud is towards the early morning, your NAD levels are going to start coming up because that's when your stomach's empty and you've absorbed a lot of the nutrients overnight. And as it's coming up towards, you know, waking up and, uh, in the early morning, that's when I provide my boost okay. and catch it on the rise.
0: Uh, that's certainly a rational approach.
1: And then, and then I try not to eat till lunch so I get that big spike.
0: Okay. I want to dive in the weeds now on NMR N, NMN and NR. Um, I had a chance to attend a lecture by Charles Brenner earlier this month and talked to him afterwards uh, And because many people use NR, not as many NMN. Uh, but th- most of the studies done on, at least NR, I, I haven't really reviewed much of the NMN literature, but the, on NR, it's usually perinerally. It's intra- intraperitoneal or IV. It's not orally. I mean, there's some, but it's not a large amount of them that are done orally. So, and, th- and the problem with it is, as I understand, is that when you swallow NR, and, and this has some implications for NMN too, that... The first bypass it goes through the liver, and the liver methylates it, so the liver gets plenty of NAD plus. But you know the the amount that goes to other organs seems to be pretty diminished, which suggests to me that a uh, either a parenteral or transmucosal approach might be a superior delivery method. So, which is one of the reasons. And I asked Jeff Brenner this after his presentation, but, you know, what he thought about transmucosal delivery, and he said he doesn't know; he didn't have thought about it. And I told him that I was using uh, Rectal and our suppositories that I make myself. And uh, he thought the compliance with that would be pretty horrible. But uh, I suspect a similar story is with going with NMN. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it.
1: Well, we, so we're doing um, the experiments that are required to actually conclude, uh, provide answers to those questions we don't know Okay. So, is the, is the answer. but. But the experiments that are ongoing in my lab, um, also in Anthony Solvay's lab in, at Cornell, we uh, we have labeled molecules, labeled NMN, and we're giving that initially to animals and, and mice. Uh, eventually we could do humans as well. And th- those are the studies you need to be able to say, yeah, NMN's going straight into cells or is it getting modified? Um, it's early days, We we think that it's a lot of it goes straight in, uh, contrary to what people are gossiping about. Uh, but, the, you know, we have to do the hard science. I don't think it's good to just hand wave and say uh, conclusions that aren't yet justified without the hard science. Fair enough. Um, on the NMN side, you probably noticed from the literature that we typically put NMN in, in the drinking water. Yeah, so because
0: it's, it's so water soluble, right?
1: Yeah, we. so it's very soluble. It's also more stable than in, NR in, mm-hmm. in liquid. So we have the advantage that we can do that. NR in liquid is highly unstable, and that's probably the reason that it's not done typically um, that way. Um, you know, but that, that said, okay. uh, we, we don't know what happens in the, in the microbiome when, it, when it's ingested either. Are those bacteria utilizing it, converting it? Is it different between people's microbiomes? We all have different microbiomes. Uh, and that's, that's the exciting part of, of the research now is to figure out once you put one of these molecules into the system... Uh, where does it go? Where are the best effects? And these are important because it'll guide uh, not just the, the use of the molecules in uh, daily life as they are now, uh, sold as supplements, but what I'm focused on is making molecules that will be uh, drug-like uh, and used as drugs that could treat different diseases. And if one molecule is better for liver, uh, one molecule is better for muscle, one gets into the brain if there are ways we can tweak the molecule and change one atom to make it last for two weeks instead of two hours. um, That's the exciting future that that I see, uh, and that's what I spend most of my time on. Um, I'm not, I I mean, full disclosure, everyone should know, even if you see my name on a website, uh, I have no affiliation to any supplement company. Uh, I'm trying to do the science and, and stick with clinical trials only at this point. So
0: you have no financial interest in NMN?
1: No, well, yeah, I I have biotech companies that um, I'm an advisor to and have licensed patents to. Um, The chance that I'll see money out of that is pretty low. Most biotechs fail. So I'm not driven by that. Uh, But I've never received a cent from supplements. um, And, you know, one of my patents was licensed to a company once, um, and I I said I, I want that money to go to research in my lab instead. I just think it's better for me, Joe, because... I want to be able to maintain sure. a distance and be able to just talk about the science with some credibility.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I heard your podcast with Peter Atia and you went into that great detail. And there are a lot of claims being made that you're, you're you're recommending a specific NAD supplement. And if you see a claim like that, it's it's not true. It's false. And you spend a good portion of your resources to send cease and desist letters for those. So. Yes. I'm sorry, you're going to have to go through that, but I want to get back to just finish up NAD, and then we're going to go into sirtuins and then gene editing. Um, do you? I just, did. You didn't mention any thoughts on the IV or uh, subcutaneous or transdermal NAD plus itself, mm-hmm. the entire whole NAD molecule, the, the you know that you're using the precursors to create, and with the uh, transporter of connexin forty three being there. And lots of anecdotal evidence, especially in those with substance abuse, getting benefits from these, these strategies. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on the whole molecule being given. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I'm, a, I'm the kind of scientist. I don't have an ego in this. If, if someone can show me data that's reproducible and reproduced in other lives, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take it on face value. Uh, and so I've heard the anecdotes on NED. And that's it seems like there's so many stories out there that, you know, there's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'd like to see is, just like I'm doing with NMN, uh, you know, sh- doing rodent studies, uh, and like James is doing, James Clement, doing human studies, um, and ultimately putting these molecules head to head. Yeah, it's really it, it's it's it can get a little annoying when you know Dr. X says this and Dr. X says right,
0: right, because you got to have data to back it up.
1: Yeah, I mean, show me them head to head. Yeah, that's yeah. the only way. I, I don't care what your opinion is. Show me the data. So that that'll be the ultimate test. Um, the problem is that these trials are really expensive, and typically doing one molecule is hard enough. But doing two in parallel is hard. Even in a mouse study, we don't typically do that. But that's where we need to go to be able to to be able to say which is the best. Um, mm-hmm. It really wouldn't surprise me if NR and NAD, NADIV, are all beneficial in in slightly um, subtle ways.
0: Okay all right well thanks for that and uh, I hope to with James do some of this research this year and maybe this fall share some of that data with you so that we can have some hard science to back it up. Um, Now I want to shift to sirtuins which are essentially protein environmental stress sensors that are responsible for longevity, longevity proteins in a simpler term and uh, it, it, I guess they were discovered in yeast uh, as CER, uh which is silent information regulators. Uh, and it suggests they work by suppressing DNA expression. And this is typically done by deacetylating the DNA and other proteins. Now, you did not discover resveratrol, but you clearly, your lab identified its effect on CERT one one of the seven important sirtuins in humans. So resveratrol happens to, to be uh, one of the polyphenols that do it, but are, are you familiar with any other polyphenols like quercetin or fisetin that have shown to have some impact? And then I want to discuss about some of the derivatives of resveratrol that you might be working
1: yeah. on. Uh, Well, yeah, you've come to the right person to talk about that. Uh, Yeah, so resveratrol was already known as what's called a phytoalexin. It seemed to have antioxidant properties and was even thought at the time to be responsible. I think some people still believe it's responsible for the French paradox, where uh, the French apparently can eat fatty foods and have uh, great cardiovascular health on average. So that was all there in the late 80s. Uh, I came along... Uh, well, you know, the mid-90s probably was the, was the real thing when 60 Minutes did a story on it. Uh, so I came along in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and we, we weren't looking at resveratrol. In fact, I'd never heard of resveratrol when we started working on it. The, the story goes like this. Uh, it's, it, it's a pretty funny story. We had purified the CERT one enzyme from humans, and we were looking in collaboration with a company called Biomol Um, and the lead scientist there was Conrad Howitz. He deserves a lot of credit for this. We were looking for molecules that would inhibit the enzyme, and um, it was a collaboration, and we were sharing stories and results. And uh, Conrad calls me one day and he says, "Uh, are you sitting down? I went, "Uh, I am sitting down, what's up? And he goes, we've got these strange molecules that may activate the enzyme. Uh, and then I, that that was, of course, music to my ears because we didn't know that NAD could be used at that point. We were just on the verge of discovering that. But what we did know that was that we, we wanted to activate these enzymes because they're beneficial. We knew in yeast and in, in worms that if we put, uh, and in flies, if you put extra copies of the SIR2, gene, they would live longer. So we wanted more, more goodness. Uh, but finding activators of enzymes is extremely rare. Uh, I think there's only a few examples in the whole history of pharmaceutical development. And when you find one, typically people call BS on you. But here was Conrad saying, "Maybe we've got something. Uh, So we tested it in the lab and we could repeat his results. Yes, it was an activator. Uh, But to really show that it was true, we had to put it on some yeast cells uh, and on some human cells and we did that. And we found that it extended their lifespan uh, in the case of yeast and in the case of human cells, protected them. And you needed the cert one gene for that to work. So it wasn't just an antioxidant effect. It was actually through the same mechanism that we were hoping it, it, it was. But you, you asked Joe about these other molecules. Well, we tested with Conrad, uh, well, we, we screened about 18,000 of them wow. and published 21 activators in that first paper in nature journal, 2003. Now, resveratrol was the best one we had at the time, and it got the most attention because the red wine story was pretty Mm -hmm. funny and and interesting to the media. But there there were others that were very close to resveratrol in structure and in potency. You mentioned quercetin, physetin, or Mm -hmm. physetin. These are plant molecules as well. They are all produced in response to stress. uh, When the plants are stressed, dehydration or UV light, and uh, they seem to have benefits on organisms when we consume them. Um, interestingly, what has later been discovered, though rarely acknowledged, is that these same molecules work on killing senescent cells. You know, the mm-hmm. viewers will know of senescent cells, the zombie cells that accumulate in our body and cause havoc. Now, others have shown that quercetin, uh, Jim Curriclund, and others uh, have senolytic properties, same with physitin. Um, But what's not recognized, typically, or admitted is that these molecules were discovered 15 years ago to also be sort one activators, so. I thought so. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Now, what I think is going on is a, uh, evidence for a, a hypothesis that Conrad Howitz and I came up with, which we published in Cell, I think it was the year 2005. Anyway, the, the, the idea is called xenohormesis, X-E-N-O-hormesis. And it's the idea that we've evolved to sense our environment and molecules that are produced by plants and bacteria in our environment when they're stressed, if we consume those or put them on our skin, for example, our bodies will recognize those. We've evolved to sense our world around us. And that's a very good way of getting a heads up if your plants are running out of nutrients or or the water table is drying up. And you know, before we were conscious and we had brains, this was the best way for a worm or a fly to, know that times were probably going to deteriorate. And, in, and what you want to do is get ready for those times of adversity before they actually happen. And uh, so that, that can explain why so many molecules from the plant world have given rise to medicines and why some molecules like resveratrol and chrysitin, even aspirin, have remarkable health benefits and target many different enzymes in the body that seems to be well beyond what uh, coincidence could explain.
0: Interesting. So there is probably not a a better person in the world to ask this question to, but you so eloquently describe sirtuins as environmental stress sensors. And when when I heard that description, it immediately occurred to me that that's very similar to heat shock proteins, almost identical. And heat shock proteins, of course, for those who don't know, are really important to fold your proteins back to the right conformation so they work properly. And I'm wondering if there's any similarities or am I just making this thing up?
1: Yeah, I, I want to con- quickly look at the literature because I, I recall that there were, were connections between sirtuins and heat shock proteins. I can't remember which controls which, but they, they're connected. But in, in, in principle, you're right, Joe, that the this is all evidence of hormesis, that you can stimulate the body's ability to fight against problems. Um, so it, it's thought that it, a little bit of heat even a little bit of cold, a little bit of hunger, uh, some exercise, some hypoxia, lack of oxygen in your body. These are all ways of activating these defense pathways. The same pathways that we've talked about before, such as sirtuins, there are seven of those, um, which by the way, NAD and resveratrol will both activate. Uh, Just to recap, the mTOR, which lower amino acids, um, particularly leucine and arginine, and the AMP kinase pathway. metformin and inhibition of uh, complex one. So these are the the main three defensive pathways. There are others, but what's downstream of these pathways are things like heat shock proteins and transcription factors that turn on DNA repair enzymes. Um, There's a whole litany actually, that there's a thousand papers per year on what are these sensors as we call them? What do they do downstream? And here's here's the good news actually, We used to think that we had to understand what everything those sensors do to to be able to understand aging and be able to live longer. But what I've been arguing actually for many years now is that we don't need to fully know what they do. Heat shock proteins are great, definitely part of it, but we don't need to know everything. As long as we can find the right nodes in the cell to turn them on in the right ratios at the right time, the body has evolved to take care of the rest. And we're getting to the point, fortunately, it's been really remarkable to see where we know what these nodes are. We have the tools to tweak them. We can also change them naturally by fasting and exercising. We change them with molecules that we can ingest or inject. But now the the cutting edge is, now with this toolbox, when do you apply them and how much and in what combinations? And that's really what people like myself and you and, and your listeners are onto right now.
0: Okay. I want to go back to NAD for a moment because there's an important component that I neglected to to discuss with you. And that is another strategy for increasing NAD plus levels is to not use it as much. And from my review of the literature, one of the primary consumer well, there's two primary ones. The inside the cell would be PARP, poly ADP ribose polymerase, which is a DNA repair enzyme and and really designed to repair DNA breaks, single and double-stranded. And every time you have a break, it's my understanding that you, the, the PARP will take suck out 100 to 100 ADP out of 100 to 150 NAD molecules and basically deplete your level by that much for every break. So, and then you've got CD38 for extracellular consumptions, which is, has to do with the immune system. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on lowering PARP activation and real common not widely appreciated, but what I'm passionate about is really topic of my next book is EMF exposure. I mean, it's pretty well documented in the literature that I've reviewed that it, 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 it does activate PARP and decreases NAD levels. So in my view, if you could limit that exposure because you're not decrease, increasing consumption, you're going to, by default, increase NAD levels.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, th- yeah, this is um, a really interesting topic, that, and I could talk all day about it. The, so PARP enzymes, you're right, there's DNA repair protein. The problem is when you hyperactivate this protein, mm-hmm. uh, there's PARP one, there's PARP two, there's actually more than 14 different PARPs. They do drain NAD quite effectively. In fact, in my lab, we've discovered another PARP that when you have inflammation, it drains NAD as well. So it does make sense to um, slow them down, as you're mentioning, um, and in some cases inhibit them. But, it, but you have to be really careful because you do need them. We only... Yeah, why them. would you want to inhibit them? Because why would you want to inhibit DNA repair? Well, you, you, you wouldn't, but you want to inhibit their overuse of NAD. Right, by, by decreasing the insults
0: that would cause them to be activated.
1: That's the best way, right? Yeah. Because then you get the, the benefits of low DNA damage and the benefits of high NAD. Uh, we had a science paper in 2013 that connected all of this together, that the Sirtuin gene the enzyme, this sort one we've talked about, actually controls PARP activity. Uh, and PARP1 is normally inhibited by uh, a protein called DBC1. And then uh, sort one controls that, uh, that process. And uh, long story short, you want to activate PARP, but not too much. And so that's what we think is going on here, this fine tuning. But But actually to get to what's really more interesting, I think, is how do you keep your levels of DNA double-strand breaks to a minimum? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key, one of the main keys to longevity. Um, And there's two reasons. One you mentioned, which is that double-strand breaks drain NAD. The second, um, which I think you're going to be familiar with because you've read my upcoming book, is the idea that DNA double-strand breaks also disrupt the cell's epigenome, the storage of uh, the, the information that we get passed down from our mothers and fathers, mother and father, um, and the packaging of, of the DNA. We, let, we can get that to that in a minute, but basically what happens is if you have a broken DNA, proteins such as the sirtuins will leave their normal sites where they're regulating genes, and they'll go help repair with PARP as well, but then they don't all find their way back to where they came from. They actually, some of them get lost and get distracted. And over time, what we see is that these proteins that are essential for maintaining cellular identity and cellular function will be lost. And we see that in yeast cells. Yeast cells get old because they're moving between breaks and back again to these, to genes. Um, so it's, it's twofold. So before we get to the science and, and I'd love to touch on that, The key ways to reduce double-strand breaks, I think, I don't know about the radiation, I I have to trust you on that one, but um, CT scans.
0: Mm -hmm. It's ionizing radiation, I'm talking about non-ionizing, but they both do it. Mm -hmm. Different mechanisms, ionizing does it through hydroxyl-free radicals and non-ionizing does it through carbonate-free radicals, primarily through peroxynitrite.
1: Yeah, makes sense. There's a lot, I mean, you can't avoid DNA breaks. In our our body every day, we have about a trillion breaks. Um, you know, one per cell at least. And just living DNA will break, especially when it's replicating itself and a cell divides, you'll have a break. So even if you live in a lead box at the bottom of the ocean, you'll still <laughs> avoid, uh, which I don't recommend doing. Um, but you can minimize it. You know, I go through the, the DNA scanners occasionally and I ask the, the people there, and I've researched this as well, the amount of radiation is about the same as you get on the flight, but, but why double your exposure? You know, to me, it doesn't make sense. So I try to, if I can, avoid uh, that exposure. X-rays, um, dental X-rays, I, you know, they're important. I'm not going to deny that. And I think that we should know what's in our mouth. But I, I would try not to overdo it. I think any physician who does X-rays should have a good reason for doing it. Um, and usually they do. But, uh, you know, be aware that there are consequences to exposing your body to radiation.
0: Okay, so let's get to what you just alluded to, which is the resolution of some of this epigenetic damage that accumulates through, through age. And what I think is one of the most fascinating aspects of your book in which you are using technology that I believe developed by uh, another uh, uh, researcher in your lab, Dr. George Church, who developed the CRISPR, and co-invented, as I understand, the, uh, the CRISPR technique. And you're using those gene editing techniques to insert three of the four Yamanaka transcription factors into aged mice that have either been experimentally or uh, are blind in some way and you can actually restore their vision through this epigenetic resurrection.
1: Yeah, Uh, so we're, we're writing up three papers now and so this is a sneak preview of what hopefully will be published later this year. And what we've discovered over the last 10 years, and this has been a a 10-year project, so I'm really grateful to the scientists in my lab who've had the endurance. We've discovered what we think is is very strong evidence for what we call now epigenetic noise as a cause of aging, not just in in mammals, but throughout life, even in yeast cells. So what does that mean? So let's just quickly do a biology lesson for those who haven't been in high school for a while. So the the genome we know, DNA, genome, epigenome is the organization of that DNA. And the epigenome tells the cell that they should turn on this gene to be a nerve cell. And in a liver cell, turn on that gene to be a liver cell. And that's epigenetics. And cells inherit that information just as much as they inherit their DNA. Um, So in my book, what I, I am proposing is that those two types of information, genomic and epigenomic, um, they're quite different. The genomic, the DNA is digital, which is very well preserved and can last a long time. We know that DVDs last longer than cassette tapes. Um, but the problem for the epigenome is that it's analog information and anyone who's had a cassette tape uh, or, or, or a record knows that you can you can pretty easily scratch these or lose the information. Um, in fact, you can scratch a DVD uh, and lose the information. We actually think that aging similar to those scratches that the information to be young again is still largely in our bodies but we can access our cells can access that information just by you know metaphorically scrubbing the dvd or polishing it up so that the cell can read the the right genes in the case of the dvd the right song Uh, so with that in mind let me explain what we've discovered if so we literally have not literally but metaphorically have a way of scratching a mouse's epigenome. And the way we do that is actually we cut the DNA. We create these double-strand breaks, let the cell heal them without making mutations. So there's no change to the digital information, but what we see is the process of proteins moving around and trying to repair that DNA eventually introduces this epigenomic noise and the genes that were once on, many of them get turned off and those that were once off come on. And so liver cells start to lose their identity, skin cells start to lose their identity. And the consequence, we think, is aging, and we actually will hopefully publish a paper that shows that if you create this noise in a mouse, it will go through accelerated aging. Uh, And not just looking old, it is actually literally old. If we measure the the epigenetic clock, uh, and I think many of your uh, listeners and viewers will know that there's a clock you can measure from blood in our bodies or in a mouse, and it'll tell you how old the animal is, or we are biologically if we do that with our mice that we've scratched up, they are literally, molecularly 50% older, which is great. Okay, but you might say, well, David, that, that's all fun, but why do we care about making a mouse older? Well, first of all, it's good evidence that we're right about the hypothesis that every aspect of aging is recapitulated. Second of all, we have mice now that we can change the rate of aging and perhaps even accelerate aging so that they behave more like humans and we can potentially have a better mouse model for Alzheimer's, for example. But then the third thing is, if you can give an animal something, then you can actually, with that knowledge, take it away. And that's what we've done with George, in collaboration with George. What we did actually was we wanted to reprogram the cells so that the the genes that were once, let's start with this, the ones on, um, now they they go back off and vice versa. So genes that were once off come back on. And what we find is that by using these three Yamanaka factors, you can actually find the original information in the cell that tells it to be young again. And those genes actually switch, and uh, the cell behaves like it's young again. And in the case of the the retina, uh, we have preliminary results that uh, we can actually restore eyesight by rejuvenating the, the nerves in the retina to be young again. Um, And so that's uh, early days of what I hope is the future where we can reprogram cells in the body, doesn't have to be the retina, can be any cell type in the body, We think, uh, to actually not just act young, but literally be molecularly young again. And in my career, I've seen a lot of cool stuff and, and I haven't seen anything this cool before.
0: Uh, I could not agree more. It's, it, the, the potential is beyond
1: extraordinary.
0: And I'm wondering if the cells that you're injection are they pluripotent stem cells that you're modifying with the Yamanaka uh, transcription factors? Well, and we're, we're, not, the, we're
1: actually we're actually just giving uh, the, the genes to the organism. We're turning on genes.
0: Oh, with, oh, with a, a virus, adenovirus? Right. We
1: do. Okay. We use the virus that's, that's used by pharmaceutical companies to correct genetic diseases. So it's a, an FDA-approved uh, virus that that uh, is very easy to use in the eye. Actually, one injection. There's no immune response in the eye, at least not a big one. And so that's why we chose the eye. Actually, uh, it's not just that we we saw it as a challenge to reverse blindness, but we also knew that um, it could be the quickest path to uh, to testing this in people and helping them with this new technology.
0: So is this mostly a local effect that you're achieving?
1: Uh, well, in the eye, yes. Uh, and and by design. You um, don't know the full safety profile yet. So we want to be careful. But we have injected mice uh, intravenously with the virus. And we've got mice that are healthy 10 months later. And so far, so good. You know, it's early days. We've only been testing it on wow. about 100 mice. So we have a lot more to do. And it's many years of work to make sure it's safe. Sure. But uh, yeah, I think the the promise is there. And it's just hopefully evidence, if not proof in principle, that aging is more reversible than we ever thought. Do
0: you have plans on putting genes in to make additional sirtuins, like all of the seven, hertu- seven sirtuin genes in humans, uh, to augment those? I mean, that's gonna be better than a, than a sirtuin activator if you can have them beyond all the time, wouldn't it be?
1: Yeah, it would. I only use viruses when absolutely necessary, I think the well-trodden path of small molecules means that there's a much greater chance of success and less chance yeah. of side effects and toxicity. With viruses, as, as great as they are and as how exciting they sound, it's still a pretty, it's still early days. We don't oh, know about well. that. Yeah. So I, I, I don't see a use for um, viruses and sirtuins in humans at this point. But I, so I'll stick with small molecules. What I do see a future. You know, if you want to go crazy with predictions, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, uh, I that that we we could see a world where where people do choose to be genetically modified. Um, it, it's their choice, right? You wouldn't. I don't think you can easily go in and modify children, even though it, that's now been done, um, unless it's life-threatening, of course. But adults, you know, they should be able to have a choice if there's if there's mm-hmm. safety and, and it, it's approved then they should be able to do that. And maybe there'll be a day when we are able to carry these Yamanaka genes in our body. uh, And when we get sick or we have an injury, uh, let's say we we have a detached retina or we have a broken spine, uh, then we get an IV that turns on those genes for a month. We recover, rejuvenate, and then we turn them off again until we need them again. And that would be a a pretty wild sci-fi future, but Mm -hmm. All science is pointing to at least um, the biology being possible.
0: I believe in your book, you mentioned that there's no rational biological requirement for death, that not necessarily mortality, but you could live hundreds of years theoretically. So I'm wondering in your mind, what you perceive as the best bridge to pass this the, the clearly 120 year limit that humans currently have. Would it be uh, resetting the that uh, epigen the methylation clock the Horvath methylation clock back to zero with like hematopoietic stem cells or what do you think is the the biggest step to do that?
1: Right. Well, so I put my money on on the DNA methylation reprogramming right now. It's uh, you know I've I've seen old mice re- regain their eyesight. I haven't seen any technology able to do that previously. So if you, if you applied that technology in combination with some of the molecules we've talked about today, mm-hmm. in combination with a healthy lifestyle that we're trying to optimize in real time here, mm-hmm. um, I don't think anyone can say what, what our limit is. I mean, anyone who says that there's a limit really doesn't know what they're talking about or is, is lying. We really don't know what's possible. People who have lived in to 110, 115, they typically smoke. They've done no exercise. They have uh-huh. had a lot of alcohol. Uh, do you, does anyone think that if they didn't have <laughs> access to the kind of things that we're talking about today, they couldn't have lived longer? I think they definitely could have. Uh, we just don't know uh, because those people are so rare and typically they didn't expect to live so long in the first place. So yeah, now now with what we know and what people in the future will know, I mean, why not? And the longer we live, the more access we have to this technology.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, so so I think anything should be on the table. Um, It's hard to make predictions. It's very easy to poke holes in these things, Um, and more often predictions are wrong uh, rather than right. But I can tell you that I firmly believe that anyone who says that there is a biological limit. Is wrong because there are, there are plenty of species uh, and not just trees and not just jellyfish. There are, are warm blooded, milk giving animals in the ocean uh, called whales that can live hundreds of years, way, you know, three times longer than us. They're not that different from us genetically. They've figured out how to stabilize their epigenome and repair their DNA and do all the stuff you need. If we can learn from them, I think we can live a life like that. And I, I think historians will look back at the past 20 years as the turning point when we realized that this was possible and finally focused our energy on the topic. So
0: So. you are the world expert in the sirtuins and uh, having made the association between resveratrol and other small molecules, and I'm wondering, I think your lab is working on these small molecule derivatives of of, uh, resveratrol uh, and other ones that activate sirtuins far more effectively. So can you comment on any ones that are in testing or close to commercial production now that might be, you know, orders of magnitude better?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So we, there are a couple of things we're doing in my lab still on this topic um, that's not widely known, uh, but I'll share with everybody. Uh, one is the, the question of what is resveratrol really doing? You know, we came out with the bold uh, hypothesis that resveratrol works through sirtuins in yeast cells, and that's how it was working. That was very controversial. Uh, It was a shock that you could actually activate an enzyme. It was a shock that you could use one molecule, a quote-unquote dirty molecule, to target very specifically one enzyme. And I've basically spent the last decade uh, testing that hypothesis time and time again. And we have new research that uh, builds upon a science paper that we had in 2013 that said that, yes, resveratrol is truly acting on this enzyme. We now have mice. That we've engineered so that they are resistant to the effects of resveratrol on the enzyme, and uh, those results look really promising. Uh, the question is, does resveratrol still work if you block its ability to activate the cert one enzyme? Uh, and the answer looks like uh, preliminarily yes. So that that's good. So the science really solid, and I wanted to to let everybody know that that's that we're still working on the science. On the drug side. Uh, so, Certurus was a company that I co-founded in 2005, and it was my first company. It was a venture, venture-backed company. It went public, and it was eventually sold to Um for a lot of money. I, I, I was, you know, a child uh, got what's called diluted down to, you know, almost nothing. Uh, One percent <laughs> or less. Yeah. Um, you know, but but the, the little money I made has been reinvested into. New, new companies, which I'm I'm excited about, you know, but but what did that teach me? It taught me that if you let go of your work early, uh, it's very hard to have a champion. And mm-hmm. so that work, it went well, but it's still not in the clinic. I'll, I'll update you on that. So that w- we made, and the company made, 14,000 different activators of cert one that were up to 10,000 times more potent than resveratrol. Mm-hmm. Those molecules, some of them, Two of them went into mice, uh, and Rafael de Cabo, NIH, he put those into mice and they they lived longer. It's it's quite a poorly recognized finding, Uh, but it it was very clear they lived longer, even on a normal diet, not just high high fat fat mice. Um, One of those molecules called 2104, SRT2104, looked great. It went into a study in humans, actually. It was a pill. Given to patients with psoriasis, plaque type psoriasis, in a small study. I believe it was uh, somewhere between 20 and 40 patients, uh, phase 2A. And uh, it looked really promising when the drug got into the, the body. There was a very significant effect on the, on the disease. Um, so Glexo uh, still has those molecules, and uh, I'm not sure what their plans are for those molecules, but uh, you can bet that I'll do everything. Uh, in my power to make sure that they make it to patients if if humanly possible. Uh, We are working actually now on derivatives of the NMN molecule and NAD precursors, and so those are exciting as well because they can boost the levels of all seven of the sirtuins, not just number one,
0: Hmm. Uh, and
1: that's where my efforts are currently focused.
0: Do they actually boost the sirtuin levels, or they just make them work better?
1: Mostly, mostly it's, it's making them more active because it's providing the co-substrate for their reaction. Right. Yep.
0: And do you, you, now GSK, uh, didn't they shut down that lab that they bought from your, your company in 2013? And if they did, do you think it was related to the fact that they didn't understand the importance of NAD? And if they were testing aged rats or mice, it's not going to work that well unless they do something to augment the NAD.
1: Uh, well, they had a little NAD program, but mostly they were working on those um, direct activators coming out of the resveratrol work. Um, w- what I think they, they didn't appreciate was the um, the wide scope of these molecules um, that they're, they were truly applicable. The other thing, um, Joe, that, that wasn't helpful to anybody. Uh, you know, in full defense of, of Glaxo, who are a very smart bunch of people. Mm-hmm. They bought the company right as the controversy around the mechanism blew up. And it was Pfizer whose scientists published that this was wrong. Now, you know, all the, all the trouble has died down now. And we've, I think, proven without a doubt that we were right. But in that, in those, you know, years of doubt, it was very hard for Glaxo to keep investing the tens mm-hmm. of it, it was taking to go uh, into larger studies. Um, and so I think that was the biggest damage that they did. Uh, it was actually Pfizer that, that, that caused that controversy with one publication. And you know, it's, it, in, in hindsight now, it's, it's really remarkable what one study can do to a whole field.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So are, are your NMN uh, derivatives getting close to commercialization?
1: Yeah, they're pretty advanced. Um, I don't talk about them a lot, um, mainly because we're we're not venture backed, so we don't need to mm-hmm. promote it. We're privately funded for now. But I'll, I'll give I'll give everybody a bit of a sneak preview. I talk a lot more about it in the book. Um, we're in humans. We are doing human clinical trials. We've finished two studies at Harvard Medical School. Uh, this is not not my study, even though it's at Harvard. It's at the hospital nearby. Um, of course, it's arm's length from me because I. I at least have the perception of a conflict of interest, so I'm not involved. But those two studies have gone well, uh, no indicators that there's any trouble. And so we're hoping to be able to have a phase two study, at least one, possibly two, begin um, two studies beginning later this year and early next, in actually in rare diseases, not in, uh, in aging itself. Not yet. And so actually, that I, you reminded me to say something that's often asked of me, which is, why not go treat aging?
0: Yeah. Go ahead. Tell us why. I I know why, but it's not a
1: very good business plan. Can you imagine the amount of money that it would take to do a trial like that? Not only would it be expensive, but at the end of it, you couldn't sell a medicine if you tried because there is no disease called aging right now. I mean, there is a disease called aging. You can look at it in the mirror if you want, Uh, but in terms of regulation, it's not recognized yet.
0: Yeah, the, the, the strategy, it seems to me, especially to obtain funding, is to figure out an anti-aging strategy that does marvelous things cosmetically, because the market for cosmetics is through the roof. And if you have something that's effective, you'll explode in revenues, and then you can use those revenues to support the real thing that's going to reverse
1: aging. Well, that, that's true, and that's partly what Lenny Guarenti and his team at least him, are doing. They're, they've gone to the market first. Um, I'm taking probably just as hard, if not more difficult, route, which is to be able to raise enough money to to get to pharmaceuticals, which is um, you know a lot of money. It's in the hundreds of millions. But I think mm-hmm. that's the path that I I think is is a better one for me personally and for the, for ultimately the product. But yeah, you're you're right. It's a challenge. You've got to either get on the market early with something that's not well proven, or raise the money and wait five to seven years with something that is eventually proven, but neither of those is an easy path.
0: No, no, but most good things in life aren't.
1: <laughs> it's true, and this is the big one. Now, if you talk about what what's gonna plague our planet and our, our humanity, our society, clearly global warming, energy crisis, these are obvious ones, but mm-hmm. what most people don't realize is that the future prosperity of the planet's gonna depend on our ability to keep our populations healthy for longer in terms of productivity and, and cost in healthcare. And instead of doing whack-a-mole medicine, where we treat one disease often too late to actually have a benefit, um, the approach really should be one where we're treating the cause of most diseases that will kill us, which is aging itself. And the idea of treating aging um, was fantasy even 20 years ago, but as I hope uh, you and your viewers are actually appreciating now. The science is top notch. We, we, we and my colleagues, we publish in the world's best journals. There have been Nobel mm-hmm. Prizes on this. The time is now to be able to translate these discoveries into medicines that can have the best chance of giving uh, future generations, even our own, uh, a chance of not being dragged down economically by the burden of dementia. And um, Alzheimer's is a huge one, but just in general, frailty is, is sucks trillions mm-hmm. of dollars out of our economies. Yeah,
0: frailty is a big one. Well, uh, I want to extend my deepest appreciation and gratitude for all the work you've done and are going to do, because you're still a very young man. The motivations for your work and your book, uh, Lifespan, the Revolutionary Science of Why We Age, is genuine and pure, as far as I can determine, and you describe it in your book and your discussions with your grandmother and your understanding of death at a very early age, four years old. So... um, you're doing a big thing to change the world and, I, and uh, at, at a level that is quite extraordinary and I deeply appreciate what you've done and would encourage people to get the book if this is a, is a topic that interests them and I think it should interest most of us because it's not just about living long. It's that, you know, who wants them to live long if you said it so, so eloquently? is the frailty. This is without frailty, attaining the uh, all the capacities and capabilities and certainly the mental ones that we have as a younger individual. Into, into older age.
1: Right, well, yeah, thanks, Joe, I appreciate it. Um, I hope people who read the book come away with uh, a new view of what's possible, and, and some people who have read it tell me that it's changed the way they look at their own lives, and that's what, what I wanted to do, is because I think we, we, we forget how important this topic is, that we can do things right now to, to alter the course of our lives, but also just the way you think about aging itself um, it's not something that uh, we used to think about the way we used to think cancer and heart disease were diseases we couldn't treat. Um, aging is is the frontier of medicine. And I talk about uh, what we can do now and what we can do in the future. I also uh, want to say, Joe, I want to commend you for, for doing what you do. Uh, you know, I could rant on, I've been the, the victim uh, <laughs> of, of, of some really bad, uh, press mostly and it's not so negative but more it's it's hype and exaggeration uh things taken out of context and you know that happens a lot in print media and i think that's just the nature of the beast you know reporters that's what they're paid to do but these these podcasts and these venues uh i mean god bless them they're they're a venue for a scientist to be able to be unfiltered and talk in depth about topics that people are really interested in and uh you know i think one thing uh, that social media and, and YouTube and, and these podcasts have done, it's its allow people to have greater understanding and depth and direct access to scientists like me, which could never be done before.
0: Yeah, you cannot get this information on the conventional media. The best you could hope for at a big spot would be maybe five, maybe possibly 10 minutes. Although I guess some of the interviews, it's very rare, although like you're never going to get two or three hours like you did with Joe Rogan on your Joe Rogan podcast and others. So. I thank you for being so gracious. I know you're a busy man and really for taking the time to really dive deep. And I think you've done a magnificent job in this interview because, uh, you know, you shared stuff that I really haven't heard you talk about previously. So thank you for doing that.
1: Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me on.
0: Okay.